This is exactly right. If you're a fan of meticulously crafted worlds that reimagine every little detail, then you'll enjoy the podcast Imaginary Worlds. Host Eric Malinsky spent over a decade working in public radio and uses those skills to create a sound-rich podcast that features interviews with Andy Weir, who wrote The Martian, the writers of hit TV shows like Star Trek Strange New Worlds, designers of games like Magic the Gathering, and the puppeteer who designed Miss Piggy. You can find Imaginary Worlds wherever you're listening to this podcast. Welcome to another episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie DeCherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And uh, we're just a little film podcast. Danielle, hey. Hey. Just out here doing our best. Yeah. Um, I have a, I had a fun errand this week. Oh, really? Care to elaborate? I, and this is something for you to look forward to when you turn 45. I had to mail a box of my own poop. <laughs> okay. Well, the minute you said 45, I was like, it's got to be something dealing with like a colonoscopy thing. Is that what it is? Yeah. Yeah. Because I had my, my my annual physical and the doctor like ordered this test for me. And she talked about it when we were doing, when I was in the physical. She's like, oh, here are all your options. But like now that you're 45, we got to check that butthole. And I was like, all right, <laughs> like fine. And so... She gave me all these options, and they all were like, oh, you could do a colonoscopy, or you could do this, or you could do that. And I chose the the Cologuard option, which is like you poop in a bucket at your house and mail it to some unfortunate lab <laughs> who just gets boxes of shit in the mail all the time. <laughs> They're like waiting and ready for it. In a bucket, an actual bucket, or is it like a yeah. little... No, it's a bucket. So they have this whole contraption that you lay. It's actually pretty easy, but it's like mm-hmm. this whole contraption that you lay out like this thing on the seat of the toilet and then you put the bucket in the hole so that it lines up and then you poop in the bucket. <laughs> and then you have then you do have to take like a stick, like a swab and scrape it over the poop. What? Oh no. And then you put this the the swab back together and then you pour all this liquid in with the poop. And then, and they send all of it in the same box. So it's like very guest free, easy. But like, then you pour all this liquid into this, the, the poop bucket and you seal it all up and you put it back in the box it came in and then you send your poop. So I had to go, I had to send it via UPS. And so I sent it, I went to the UPS store in the town that has like the Target. And it's like 20 yeah. minutes away from here because we don't have UPS here. So I went to the store and I walked in and it was like a Staples. <laughs> oh boy. I, the guy at the counter saw me coming with the box and he just threw up his hands and he goes, I can't take that because that's a human specimen. And I was like, you know what? Solid. Because if I was working a retail job and somebody came at me with a box of poop, I'd be like, I got to mm-hmm. quit. I don't get yeah. paid enough for this shit. So I should have known. But then he directed me to a UPS store that would take it like a drop-off point store, like an actual UPS, not inside of another store that would take it. So then I walked in and I'm like, hi, here's my poop. And they were like, yep, we'll just scan it and send it. And it was just like, but it was a disaster. It was like, knowing you have to poop makes me, it makes it hard for me to poop. Oh, yeah. 
Oh my God. I can't eat. Like any medical thing where I'm like, I have to do this. It makes it so hard to do that. So like I have to get blood taken so I can't eat for 12 hours. And I'm like, this is impossible. I don't know how people like, it's just, it's impossible. So it was just a real long dark night of the soul of the soul with me trying to poop. And Colaguard is fucking on it. Colaguard well, was texting me and calling me and they're like, have you pooped yet? Have you pooped yet? Have you pooped in that bucket yet? And I'm like, God damn, give me a minute. Okay. Okay. First of all, nobody can see me right now, but uh, the faces that I've been making since you began this tale, I look like Bilal from Basket Case. Like I'm just my my whole uh, my eyebrows are up, my chins are out. Like I'm just I've got so many things. I've got so many points to go over with you. Bring them on. I'm okay. I'm here to shepherd anyone, any, you or any listener who is weary of pooping in a bucket and mailing it through the process because it okay. was a first for me. Well, okay. So number one, did we talk about this, about how now colonoscopies happen at 45 instead of 50? Yeah. Yep. So that's across the board, I believe, because that's what they told me too. And I was like, well, what is the reason for that? I wonder. I think they're trying to catch it, catch earlier signs okay. of like colon cancer and things like that. So I, I believe it's, it's you know, it's part of your preventative health where they're like, well, yeah. let's just check out your poop before it gets to the point where you have a problem that we right. have to address. Well, and like, I'm so fascinated by these like test things because so sometimes this stuff can work in your favor. Like I'll, gi- I'll yeah. give you an example. You know, I just went to get all my yearly stuff done. Remember, I needed to get a pap, but I didn't want to go to the yep. cute doctor. I decided to go to a, <laughs> another person in his practice, which is what happened. Ah. And uh, they were like, if you get the all clear, you don't have to come back for five years. And I was what? like, it's moved to five? Yeah, because it used to be like two, where they're like, okay, come back every year, come back every two years. Now it's five years. Yeah, so it was like, it used to be two, and then it was three for a long time. And then now five, which I'm like, wow, that's fascinating. Uh, I mean, to me, I wasn't sure how to take that. I was like, is it because it's like this trap door only opens (laughs) very rarely? (laughs) Like, Ah! all good, shut it back up. We don't got to get in there. I'm pretty sure that's what it is because, and like, especially if you don't have any genetic markers where they're like, oh, like this runs in your family, so we should check on it. Yeah. Because the minute I told my gynecologist that like I don't bone, she was like, why are we doing this? <laughs> why am I doing any of these tests? And this, the, the doctor who did my physical said the same thing because she was doing blood work and she's like, oh, we'll check for STIs and blah, blah. And I was like... I was like, oh, yeah, like, I, you know, I, I don't have sex, but you can do that. And she's like, what do you mean? And I told her, and she was like, she just literally started laughing. She's like, so you just want a base for nothing? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. <laughs> she's like, so the last time you had sex and had a checkup, there was nothing. And now you want to just do that again. And I'm like, yeah, pretty much. That's my life for the last 10 years. It's like, just test the blood. You got it. Test the blood. Dude, it's like somebody coming out and doing the, like, AC maintenance during the winter. Like, exactly. you just have to, like, you're not running it. You're not running the unit, but you yeah. need to make sure that there's no like dead rodents in there or something. Like exactly. That. No, just Ex- like- and also like you know when it comes to pap smears and stuff, it's like you don't have to have sex for something to be wrong down there. 
Totally. Oh, totally. So I'm like, yeah, I'm coming in and checking it out. I was like, stop making fun of me, dudes. Like, everyone makes fun of me when I try to do maintenance. My fucking mechanic is always like, you never drive this car. This car has less than 20,000 miles on it. What are you doing? And I'm like, I have to. You have to get it checked every six months. Stop fucking making fun of me for trying to do the right thing. Yeah. No, you're doing the right thing. And anybody who's going to make fun of you for, you know, doing the preventative stuff is a too cool asshole. Everybody, everybody knows that the cool, the actual cool people, you know, get their oil changes when they're supposed to. Thank you. you Okay. Thank you. So I saw, you know, I see you eye to eye on this, but okay. So let's, let's go back to this colonoscopy thing. Okay. So now you have to get them at 45. Yep. And am I right in hearing you say that you get to choose whether or not it's like the microscope up the butthole or a box? Yeah. So as long as there's no, again, like no genetic issues, like, oh, like my granddad didn't have colon cancer, like no one in my family's had colon cancer. So if that's the case, then they're like, they give you some options and they're like, but all the options lead to a colonoscopy if there's anything abnormal. So they're like, oh, we could just check your blood. But then if there's anything up, like we'll do a colonoscopy. You could poop in a box, but if there's anything wrong, we'll call you back in to do a colonoscopy or you could just do a colonoscopy. And I'm like, well, let me just go right down the middle and choose pooping in a box. <laughs> I feel like that's a little more medical. Like they're checking the actual poop and not the blood, but it's not like microscope up the butt and a whole yeah. day of my life where I have to be like put under and wake up and farting. And you have to drink that shit. Exactly. That drink the shit. I've taken yeah. several friends to their colonoscopy appointments and they always wake up farting and laughing. And I'm like, it seems dope on the other end, but like <laughs> the prep for it is not my jam at all. <laughs> So, okay, so you went for the poop box option. See, here's my thing about a poop sample. I, so, a long time ago, like, I think I was probably still in college, I applied for this job that required a stool sample. (laughs) What? (laughs) And... I think it was like I was trying to figure out in what for like what purpose. Like it was um it was a food service job. Okay. Wait, so maybe what? some they wanted to check to make sure you didn't have like intestinal worms. So like I don't know what it was. For when you're shitting in the food, like well then we'll be able to know who it was. <laughs> or you were working with like organic stuff. I don't know. But all I know is the minute they said Please give a stool sample. I never went back. <laughs> like I, I, I filled out the paper application, and they were like, "Here's the d- instructions on how to give us a, a stool sample." And I was like, "See ya, Seca. I am not doing that. I don't care if this job paid two million dollars a year." <laughs> When I was, like, t- 22, I was like, is there anything more horrible than a job asking you for a stool sample? Absolutely not. Because you're that is not a common medical... Like, up till that point in your 20s, like, you've had bare minimum medical attention. Yes. For most and I mean, people. I mean, the worst case scenario up until that point was a piss test, which right. was always, like, a struggle because everyone's like, oh, man, I got to take a piss test for my job, and I just smoked, like you know, 10 bong hits the other night or whatever. Oh, my God. And and there was always that thing of, like, gaming the system to get a clear piss test. That was, like, a whole thing for my 
my teen years, you know? My, my brother is like the least scientific person you'll ever meet. But when he had to take a piss test for a job, he turned into like like a like fucking MacGyver. He's like, all right, so you drink Golden Seal, and then you drink a bunch of water, and then you do this. And I'm like, how do you know all this? It's like travels in the circles of stoners where they were like, all right, here's how you get around it. Like, don't eat poppy seeds or do eat poppy seeds because then it'll throw off the test. And I'm like, y'all are working too hard to smoke a joint. Okay. Golden seal. Okay. <laughs> this was, I swear to God, I have only heard of this thing. Yes. I only heard of it in the 90s in reference to piss tests for jobs as a stoner. Completely. Have you ever taken or heard of Golden Seal beyond that? I have not. I don't even know if it's real. I don't know if it's specifically marketed to stoners. I don't know anything about it other than that's the go-to if you're trying to scam a test. Okay, I I just Googled it because I was like, is that a joke? Like what? Because they used to actually sell it. At the head shop that you go to, like you you could buy Golden Seal in the while buying a pipe with a dragon on it. They're like fucking one stop shop. Get your weed. Get your pipe. Get your fucking Golden Seal. Get your your clear eyes eye drops. Yes, (laughs) it's like all of your all of your weed lifestyle paraphernalia. But it says Golden Seal is an herb. In the buttercup family. So I didn't even realize it was an herb, maybe. And it's a dried root that is commonly used in supplements in the U.S. Okay, so... We didn't even really know if it worked. It was just something that someone's older brother told you to take. And then we were just using it with with the hopes that we could get a job at fucking checkers or whatever. I don't know. Like, Oh, my God. People just drowning themselves in gal- gallons of water. Like, you see people walking around with a gallon of water, and you're like, oh, you got a piss test coming up. <laughs> yes. Just dr- trying to drown it out. And I'm like, you don't know how the body works, especially if they pull that hair. If they pull that hair, you're fucked, because I just saw oh, you do it. Oh, the hair. <laughs> I just saw you do Don't even get me started. <laughs> because if you were lucky, even, you could probably get somebody to take a piss test for you. Remember oh that God. being the thing oh, where yeah. you were like, uh, this guy... I think he's good. He didn't smoke in like two weeks and maybe it's out of his system and he can just pee in this cup for you. But like, if they took a hair sample, that was always a thing I remember with people who did a lot of LSD. They were like, no, the the LSD is going to show up in the hair. You're so fucked, dude. People turn into straight up scientists and it cracks me the fuck up. I I got asked a couple of times to do a piss test and I, I always said no. I'm like, no. I'm not just because my friends would like know that I don't smoke or do drugs or anything like that. Yeah. So they'd be like, how about you do it? And I'm like, one, you're a dude and I'm a woman. I don't know much about science, but there's got to be something going on there where they could tell that from pee. Yeah. Like the ketones are high. I don't know how they're going to tell, but like, <laughs> I don't think this is going to work. And also, no, like deal yeah. with your fucking consequences of your choices. Well, and like they actually still give pee tests when you're at the gyno, which yeah. I, my brain was always like, is it because they think that I'm on drugs? And then <laughs> our friend, our friend Shalewa was like, no, it's to see if you're pregnant. And I'm like, oh, definitely not pregnant. 
Exactly. Definitely not. <laughs> exactly. Or in my case, as my doctor told me, they could tell if you're dehydrated. They could tell like oh, yeah. all kinds of shit from your pee. But yeah, I was just like, everyone turns into a fucking scientist. And now they've got the science coming right to our house where they're like, oh, you want to play with some golden seal? Why don't you shit in this box <laughs> and fucking drag a stick through it, you idiot. <laughs> so that I guess that leads to my final observation slash question about this Cologuard thing, which is that you're so right. It is not fair to make people working at Walgreens or wherever the drop-off is to handle boxes of poop. That is not fair. It's not okay. It's not okay. And even when I brought it to the UPS drop-off point, I was like, can I just put this in a bucket or something for you? Like, it's not like I shit on the outside of the box. Like, it was all contained. But just knowing what's in there... No way. I just can't. And it was like, because of the liquid that you pour on top of it, it's all sloshing around. And I'm like, this is... No. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you can hear the liquid. (laughs) You can hear the liquid, and I'm like, no, this is this is no one who's working for minimum wage or even close to should deal. And no one at all in any retail scenario. I don't care how much you're making. You're not making enough to do that. I don't care if you handed it to me with gloves. I'm like, it has been around a poopy thing. Exactly. So I don't exactly. want to touch it. I'm I'm not, I didn't want to touch it. It was my own shit. <laughs> That whole experience was nightmarish. I'm like, I do not want to be at this up and close and personal with my own shit. And also, I got to say, water goes a long way. Water in a toilet goes a long way to helping mask the smell of shit. Shitting dry into it, like just a dry receptacle. There's no hiding from it. You're like, yep, that is shit. That is shit. I, I, I have in the past prided myself on I'm like one of those people that haven't puked in like 20 years. Yep. Pretty cool. Mm-hmm. However, I, the the gag reflex really gets going when poop is involved. Like I don't know what it is, it's just about poop. Like and and I pick up dog poop all the time. But so it's, it's a human real poop. it's a real fast thing. Human poop though is there's a little bit more at stake. Yeah. You know, and I just am like, I can't, I just can't do it. And now it's like, now I'm thinking, okay, so next year is going to come around and I'm going to get the option, poop box or colonoscopy. And I'm like, do I do that colonoscopy? Because I don't know if I can shit in a box. From this point forward, I'm going colonoscopy. Really? Really? It it was easy and fun and it's a great option and I'm glad I did it. But I'm going colonoscopy from this point forward just because, like, the physical lead up to it and me not being able to poop because I was so nervous about being able to poop. Because that's the other thing. They're like, oh, just put, like, your normal sample size in here. And I'm like, well, what's normal to you? I know. It's... Like, this bucket's pretty big. I, I could fill this. I could fill this bucket on a good day. So, like, I was nervous about, like, am I pooping too much into the bucket? Am I pooping too little into, like, just the lead up to it and then the dealing with it. And, like, I, I will colonoscopy from now on. Well, and it would just make me incredibly self-conscious about, like, what I had eaten in, like, the past yeah. couple days because, like, I mean, I don't know. Did I have a healthy meal or did I have, like, a giant bucket of popcorn right before? You know, like, <laughs> I don't want to have to worry about that. Like, I'm sitting here going, like, well, I know I'm going to be pooping in a bucket and putting it in a box. So oh, how do I game this to make it the least 
offensive to me. Like, how do I make my poop beautiful so I don't have to deal with the fact that I'm pooping and sending it in the mail? How do I make my poop beautiful? That's too much. That's too much. It is too much. It is too much. And let me tell you, they also say it's okay for you to get a little bit of pee in the bucket. And I'm like, well, again, how much is a little? Because now you're sitting on your toilet and this bucket is in your toilet. Like, you can't help it. There's no way around it. So if you're peeing, you're peeing in that fucking bucket. I'm like, again, how much is a little? Yeah. I need measurements because if you're like a teaspoon, then I got to pee first and then put the contraption in and then poop in the bucket. It was a lot. It was a lot of stress. I I got to say I don't like this self-service shit. I got to say it. <laughs> I'm like this. This is like I feel like we're going on that road. Yep. We're like as a as a society, they're like, we need you to collect your own urine, feces, blood. Like, why don't you just take off your own moles and then put them in a fucking box, and we'll just like scan them. Like, I don't want to do this stuff myself. Like, I why hate the fucking doctor, but I don't want to do this myself. It's too much. I know. I'm not. I'm not doing an at home hysterectomy. Come on. <laughs> Like, oh, why don't you do this tubal ligation? We've got a fucking soldering iron and a goddamn mirror. It's like, what the fuck, man? Like, I don't want to do this. I know. I'm going colonoscopy because I want I want the science to be in the science building and not in my bathroom. Yeah, I mean, I got I I anytime I've had to drink stuff in order to like light up my insides for some <laughs> high-res camera, it sucks. Okay. And you know. Colonoscopies suck. It's it is an all day thing, but it, at least it's not you handling your own poop, right? Strangers having to clock in to handle your poop. Like I just it, the whole process is bad. I don't. Yeah, know. is that I, just me? No, I think again it's a nice option, especially if it's like this is the only way that some people are going to get this done, or like this right. is you know like if, if it's I don't think it's covered by insurance. I don't even know if it's covered by insurance, but it's like all right if this is. What people have to get it done, I I understand that. Like I think sure, sure. options are fine. I personally am not taking that option again. <laughs> I ain't doing it. And I had a, a friend who had to have a colonoscopy recently, and she was drinking the stuff beforehand. And she's like, "They said I have to drink it until I go clear." And I'm like, "What? Like become a Scientologist?" And she's like, "No, until like my <laughs> poop is clear." And I'm like, "Oh, well, that's fun." Like, that's, like, a fun experiment that I will do at home is, like, drink this until my poop is clear. What but does I, that mean? Is it white, clear poop? No, like, you're just, like, shit in water. Like, you're basically not having, wow. like, any stuff come out There's anymore. nothing in there. Okay. Yeah. Wow. This episode is maybe the grossest one we've ever done. <laughs> and that's saying a lot. That's saying a lot. Look, I ain't shying away from the human condition. You know this. Yes. <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> and is. And apologies to anybody who's still with us and is like, yes, I'm on board. Exactly. I'm also not apologizing. These are also people who don't want us to talk about Vanderpump rules. Like, we can't please anybody. (laughs) You got poop or Vanderpump. Someone's going to complain about both. So just talk about whatever you want. They're not on board with Lala, but they are (laughs) on board with sloshy poop in a box. Okay. I guess that's what's going to happen. Do you, do you want me to cleanse the palate real quick before we get to the uh, the movies? Absolutely. All right, I'll give you a quick a quick test. Simil- in the vein of, I dropped my diva cup in some potting soil, so you have to guess how this happened. 
Okay, okay. Oof. Real quick. Okay. Like, it's a quick little game. Okay. So the premise is, or the thing that you have to figure out is, I lost my hammer in a tree. I lost my hammer in a tree. Okay. Three um, guesses. Three guesses. It's not involving the color guard test, right? So this is no. completely separate. <laughs> I don't know. I, took I was it like, to maybe, extremes. maybe, maybe this was, maybe this was the thing. Okay, you lost your hammer in a tree. A, my uh, answer number one or answer A. You were building a tree fort. Nope. Not involving a tree house. Okay. Hmm. Okay. Two. Were you chasing an animal up there? Nope. No? So it doesn't have anything to do with animals? Nope. Okay. <laughs> Look at your face, right? <laughs> you just looked at I'm, me like, what else could there be? <laughs> I know. I was like, what? How else? So it's not animal related. It's not tree house related. I lost my hammer in a tree. Were you throwing a hammer like an axe throwing? Were you playing a game? Did you nope. have a target? To, so, Okay. So I'm completely out of answers. (laughs) So I have, over my driveway, there are a couple of trees, like a few trees that hang over my driveway. Okay. And I had my trees pruned last year. You know, like they cut down the... And it costs a lot of money, and they cut down dead trees, and it just costs a lot of money. But I've noticed all winter long, there's been this broken branch. I think it broke off in a windstorm. Uh-huh. And it's just been hanging over my car like the sword, like the sword of fucking Damocles. And I'm like, <laughs> that shit is gonna fall and break my windshield one day if I don't fix this. But I also okay, don't want to yeah. pay the tree guy to come back out for this one branch because he's gonna be like, oh, we got to get the crane, and that's gonna be five hundred bucks, and then we got. So I'm like, no. So what I did was I got my ladder and a hammer, and I propped it up in my driveway. And I started beating the shit out of this broken branch, branch, thinking like, all right, cool. Like, I will just <laughs> break it down. And that wasn't working. So I climbed into the tree. Like, I put the ladder against the tree, the trunk, uh-huh. climbed into the tree, climbed out a little bit on the branch and started banging it. And that worked. But then on the last, like one of the last swings, I flung back too far and uh-huh. it got stuck in some branches. And I, so when I pulled my hand down, the hammer wasn't there. And I was like, all right. So I climbed back down the tree. I took the branch and pulled it so it came off finally. Like okay. I hit it enough times with the hammer that it came Mission off. Mission accomplished, yeah. Mission accomplished. Dragged the branch into the woods. Then I had to climb back into the tree and find my hammer. <laughs> so where was it? Was it way up there or? <laughs> it was like, yeah, it was like a, like a couple of feet a, a, above me because it just got like okay. tangled up in some fucking, but I couldn't see it from the ground because I'm like, oh, if I could see it from the ground, maybe I could like throw a basketball at it or something. I couldn't see it from the ground. And also I'm like, well, if I throw something at it from the ground, it's going to fall and hit me on the head like a cartoon character. Exactly. I was going to say that's, uh, we, I think we know from movies and TV, you shouldn't have heavy metal things completely dangling. Above Completely. you. And also, again, if I leave it in the tree, a wind is going to come along and blow it, and it's going to smash to my fucking windshield. So it was an afternoon that I, I do not recommend anyone trying. I should have just <laughs> called the tree guy and been like, look, if I give you 20 bucks, will you take this branch down? See, but I would have done that shit myself, too. <laughs> like, sometimes you're just like, I don't want to wait around for a dude all day. And, you know, it's like, then I got to pay him to do something I can just do myself. But, oh, you God. know. 
But I exactly. definitely understand your conundrum with getting the, the hammer down ASAP because I couldn't have slept that night knowing that that thing was still up there. Just floating. Or, and you know these animals around my house. I'm like, oh, a squirrel's going to get that fucking hammer and then be knocking, like banging into my house and be like, oh, you don't want me in here? Knock, 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 motherfucker. Now I got a claw. Like, what are you yeah. going to do to stop me? Oh, I'm sure like raccoons know how to use tools at this point. They're very Absolutely. dexterous. They've they figured out how to use weapons and with their little weird hands. So yeah, you're right. Oh. You're right. If you would have kept it up there, it would have been a mess. But I'm glad no. that you got it down. Yeah, a possum with a hammer is like a fucking tank. <laughs> like that's the equivalent of a tank to me. A possum <laughs> with a hammer. But then here's what's cool. I did all this. I got the branch down. Boop, boop, boop. Dun, dun, dun. Another fucking branch broke. And it's hanging <laughs> over that car. <laughs> I hate that. Listen, I think between... You've had quite a week. I have to say, like, <laughs> in between this week and last week, you had to poop in a box and you had to rescue a hammer that flew into a tree. Oh, God. I dropped my diva cup in some potting soil. I lost a hammer in a tree. These are sentences I say to myself all the time. <laughs> well, speaking of a sentence to say all the time, you came up with one this week that is so good. I sure did. Because our theme this week is, well, Butrin would clear that right up. That's right. Uh, obviously a Danielle theme. Or it was, a, I think it was another tag team moment, but you definitely came up with that name. Like, it, was a t it was a tag team moment because you were like, I really want to like discuss mental health in film and like look at that a little more closely. Yeah. And then I came up with that, that theme based on, yeah. <laughs> based on our choices. Well, which is good because it feels like it is, it is kind of almost like a benign statement for the, the things that are happening in these films, which Completely. is why it's, why it's really good. Yeah. So basically, yeah, it's, it's, it's a week of movies about mental health. I have never seen your movie before. I had never and, seen your movie before. Hey, look at this. Like a cultural exchange. <laughs> I was starting to think about this, actually, because I know we talked about how we want Matthew Modine to be on this podcast. Hmm. And dare I say, has he appeared in most movies on this podcast? Like, is he... <laughs> because we talked at least about... Full Metal Jacket, Memphis Bell, Vision Quest, and now your movie. I think That's the only four. one we haven't done is Gross Anatomy. Yeah. And and technically, if you want to get technical, you and I did a commentary track for Married to the Mob, which yep. was not technically... So I feel like he's like our most appearing actor on the pod. I think wouldn't so. Wouldn't you say? I think so. I was thinking about that, too, this week, where I'm like, wow, we really do have quite the Modine fan club going on here. And it, it to me, that came through the back door. I didn't yeah. realize that we had felt so strongly about him. Neither did I until we started doing this pod, and apparently every other movie's got to have a little Modine in it. Well, that's how most great loves start, is when you're <laughs> least expecting it. Through the back door, because I'm a child. I couldn't <laughs> let that just hang there. Hey, we just did 30 minutes on poop. So... <laughs> Um, <laughs> uh, look, I, 
I loved your movie so much. And I actually think that these two together are great because it feels like they're both like indie films almost in a way. Like, I don't Mm -hmm. know... I know that your movie was made by like a pretty famous director and it was probably a studio film, right? Yeah. But it feels like an independent film almost because it's very, the story is very, I don't know. There's something about it. It's not necessarily quiet, but it's it's like this nice kind of coming of age friendship movie. Yeah. Which I feel like mine is too. Like yeah. it's a coming of age kind of thing. I loved um, your movie too. I didn't I had ne- never seen it before and I loved it and I feel the same like it's it is it's quiet it kind of and both movies kind of give you that indicate that feeling of like we don't know where it's going but yeah. we know that it's not going to be where we think it's going to like it's it's they're both very unexpected in yeah. the way that they're developed but they're both very cozy in the way that they're yes. developed. I don't know. Cozy, yeah. that's a good word for it, which is I think is actually good because I feel like you know, as we've seen throughout film and film history, there have been, like, many different types of portrayals of, like, mental health and mental illness specifically. You know, mm-hmm. you could go, I mean, there are, you know, I think about films that are, you know, kind of from, like, the 50s and before that are kind of over the top and portray, like, facilities and institutions as these, like, you know, wild places where people are having like, you know, it, we even talked about it with The Exorcist, like that right. moment of The Exorcist where Damien goes to visit his mom and that kind of like portrayal of a place mm-hmm. like that. I think for these two movies, they take like a different approach to it and it's more through like the friendship and the relationship route. And I don't know, like you said, cozy, I think that's the perfect word to describe it. Like, I think these are two like really great films to watch together but then they don't they don't seem to be like so over the top when addressing this stuff you know what i mean yeah and i think it's because they focus on the characters rather than like the illness or the things that are happening around them like like they're really tuned into like well who are these people what are they possibly going through or what are they thinking and feeling and that helps take the the kind of sensationalism out of it so yeah yeah totally well listen i think i'm going first this week yeah so my movie for the theme, Will Butrin would clear that right up, is a film from 1962. It was uh, written by Eleanor Perry, and it was based on a book by Theodore Isaac Rubin. It was directed by Frank Perry, and it's called David and Lisa. David, David, look at me. Who do you see? Who do you see? Yes, so. I love this little movie. I love it. So good. I I think it's one of those... I love movies like this. I love these kind of like 50s, early 60s, black and white kind of independent American films, you know? Mm-hmm. I think it was only shot for like $200,000, which is nothing yeah. to shoot a movie for, right? Even back then, yeah. Yeah, and, um, you know, I think this is kind of one of those films where you can see what that sort of American independent cinema would be like in the future. Right. It's just got kind of, it's a, it's a precursor to all that kind of stuff. But I want to talk a little bit about Frank and Eleanor Perry because they were a married couple and they were a team in Hollywood for a couple of years. Frank Perry, the director, and his wife, Eleanor, who is the screenwriter. And they would go on to create 
a lot of great memorable films, both together, but also separately. They did one of my favorite films ever, this movie called The Swimmer with Burt Lancaster. I didn't know that. That was them. Yes. And I know it has been on our to-do list since we started the podcast, I feel like. Yeah. We have that document in our Google Drive, which is like all the movies we want to talk about. And I swear to God, I put the swimmer on there like day one. It's just a matter of figuring out how to use it, of course. Yeah. But if you haven't seen that movie, The Swimmer, I won't like give it away, obviously. But it, I feel like, like David and Lisa, The Swimmer is also kind of a character study type mm-hmm. film. Um, and maybe kind of deals with a mental health issue. Dot, dot, dot. But um, Frank Perry directed a lot of other films that I really like. Um, He did, like, Diary of a Mad Housewife, and he did Play It As It Lays, of course, the Joe Didion film adaptation. Yeah. But I I really want to talk about Eleanor, because Eleanor was really talented. As you know, Danielle, I'm sure, screenwriters, you know, kind of classically do not get as much love and attention in the film world as, like, directors, right? Right. But Eleanor Perry was a very prolific writer, and she wrote plays and books, not just films. She had a master's degree in psychiatric social work, which I'm sure was... Damn. ...really helpful for David and Lisa when she was writing David and Lisa. But she was also an unabashed feminist, and she helped... Lots of women gain entry into the film industry, which I think is really great and should be commended. That's so cool. And to her credit, she was nominated for a Best Adapted Screenplay Oscar for David and Lisa, her very first screenplay. So, Damn, that's impressive. What, yeah, pretty great. So as much as, you know, people might talk about Frank Perry being this great director, we got to show love to Eleanor, too. She's great. So here's a one-sentence synopsis of David and Lisa. Two young people living in a residential mental health treatment center make an unlikely connection. Very nice. Does that tempt all of you to want to see this motion picture? So, like, as for the theme and how David and Lisa kind of play into this theme, right... We talked about this a little bit on our Bad Seed episode, but, like, you know, you think about America post-World War II, and, you know, there was a, seemed to have been a, a, a fascination with therapy and mental illness and movies about those things, movies about addictions, you know. I talked a little bit about that in the Bad Seed. Mm-hmm. And so David and Lisa came out in, like, 62, kind of, you know, catches the later part of that wave. But I feel like that's, you know, a big part of why the film was made, but also based on the book, which was written by the psychiatrist named Theodore Isaac Rubin. And it was kind of a case study book. So, you know, I think that's really fascinating to take the work of a doctor and make it into a motion picture. And I know that this, I think that this was remade, like Oprah remade David and Lisa, I think. Like oh, wow. I want to say it was in the 80s or maybe the 90s. But yeah, so it's 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 kind of a classic kind of adaptation at this point. 
That's wow. been made several times. So the stars of David and Lisa are Janet Margolin, whom you may know uh, if you're a Woody Allen fan. I know we don't really say that name on this podcast all the time, but she was in a few Woody Allen movies. And Kier Dulay, who you probably know from 2001 A Space Odyssey and a movie that we've talked about before, Black Christmas. He plays the asshole boyfriend <laughs> of Olivia Hussey in Black Christmas. And also looks vaguely like Christian Leitner. Yeah. Another person we've brought up on this podcast before. He just has one of those, like, strong white man faces. <laughs> I don't even know how else to describe it. It's just like, that's a white man right there. Yeah, for better or for worse. <laughs> A hundred percent. It's like he is from the northern part of Europe, like some kind of like Scandinavian Dutch look. It's those Dutch eyes. I don't know, like those Swedish eyes. Like him and Christian Leitner both have those like husky eyes. Watch out, Betty Davis eyes. We're coming at you with some Dutch eyes. Dutch eyes. <laughs> that sounds like a name of a strain of weed to talk about. <laughs> to bring it back to our earlier combo. Uh, yeah, we were hitting that Dutch eyes last night. It was great. Now I got to oh, drink God. some Golden Seal so I can pass my piss test. <laughs> <laughs> we're hitting those Dutch eyes. <laughs> hitting those Dutch eyes. That has got, I don't care what we say from this point forward, that has got to be the title of this episode. <laughs> Hitting those Dutch eyes. <laughs> now that I've completely derailed this conversation. <laughs> well, he has a, He has one of those faces, though, where you're like, it's it's a little bit compelling and captivating because of those eyes. Yeah. De oh, definitely. And, like, I, it's worth noting, too, you know, much like Frank and Eleanor Perry, like, you know, Janet Margolin, this was her first film. I think Kier Dulay had been in one film prior to David and Lisa. So everybody on the set was like a newbie, which I, I think is fascinating. Right. So just to go through like some of the beats of the film. So the beginning of the film is basically David. His It's his first day at this home for children and teens who have mental health issues. And that's kind of really the extent of it. It doesn't really kind of go into detail beyond that. It just seems like a group home type of scenario, okay? Right. And David shows up with his mother and he's wearing this like three-button little mod 60s suit. And he's tall. And, you know, I think at the very beginning you can tell that he's really intelligent, but he's also very uptight mm -hmm. and very intense. And he's got these obsessions with clocks, which sort of is a runner throughout the film. But most importantly, under no circumstances does David want to be touched by anyone. Mm -mm. And even if somebody puts their hand on his shoulder, he loses it. Right. We love a boundary king. Yeah, he is a boundary <laughs> king for sure. And the thing that I think is interesting in David and Lisa is that both for him and for Lisa, which we'll talk about in just a second, 
their conditions are not really fleshed out in the film. Mm -hmm. There's never that moment like that happens in other films about mental illness where a doctor sits in his office and goes, well, based on the x-rays and the monitoring that we've done, it seems that this guy has obsessive compulsive disorder or whatever, you know. There's never that like treatment or, you know, there's never like the thing where the where their conditions are discussed, which I actually think is kind of interesting. Yeah. I actually appreciate that. I do too. It kind of, it gives some mystery to, it it kind of, well, I should say it removes the mystery from the narrative being focused on the diagnosis and gets you more into paying attention to how the characters are developing and who they actually are. Like they're, they're, whatever's going on with them is part of who they are and it's not, siloed off in a way that you're like, oh, well, now that I know this, I don't have to pay attention to anything that they say or do. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, that's a, that's important. Like, I think what doesn't get said in the movie sometimes is makes the movie better, you know? Mm-hmm. So David starts meeting all the other kids in the facility and he is rude to everyone. Duh. He's like, what is his line? Like, <laughs> which is so funny about how he's like, exercises for idiots or something. (laughs) And then he just runs away, which I was like... And that is how he responds to any and everyone, where they say like, hey, you want to go outside and like sit under a tree? And he's like, trees are for fucking filth. And you're like, god damn. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. He is, uh, he just shits on everything you could possibly like. And... So he's meeting all these other kids. He is definitely not making any friends. But he's introduced to the resident psychiatrist, who is this man named Dr. Swinfern. And he's played by this actor, Howard De Silva. And, you know, we talked about just now how everybody on the set, you know, the screenwriter, the director, the principals, everybody was kind of a, a newbie. But Howard De Silva actually was a veteran actor. And he hadn't worked up until this point. He hadn't worked in a film in 11 years uh, because he was blacklisted. Oh, wow. Yeah, by the House Un-American Activities Committee. So so he was, you know, he had come off an 11-year hiatus and did this film. And his character, I think, is maybe one of my favorites because, again, I think atypical of some of these, like, broad movies of mental health and mental illness, there's this heavy-handed doctor type. Like, mm-hmm. I would say they're, the doctor that's in your film is that type, right. you know? I think that Dr. Swinford, though, is not. He's very much, like, he's he's not really doing much more than just trying to understand the kids, you know? Yeah. He's very gentle. He seemed right? like a more modern doctor, well, even while I was watching it, I'm like, oh, this seems like more of what like modern psych is about. It's like just listening yeah. and understanding. Yeah. Yeah. There's a scene where <laughs> him and David, I don't know if this is at like two o'clock in the morning, but they're both like eating off of a giant chocolate cake. <laughs> like they just pull out this giant chocolate cake and they're just like eating from it. I'm like, cool. It's so good. He's like, let yeah. me make you comfortable here so that we can work out what's going on. Yeah, exactly. I was like, wow, I, I want to hang with this guy. He's cool. So after after this, David meets a girl in the home named Lisa. And at first, Lisa kind of comes across 
almost kind of like an Ally Sheedy from the Breakfast Club type. Like, she's kind of spooky, and she's got her hair on her face, and she's kind of, like, peering around her bangs, that kind mm-hmm. of thing. But after a while, we kind of get the message about what Lisa is in the home for. And she speaks in rhymes, and is is that's how she communicates. And she has actually a second personality named Muriel that kind of manifests itself at different points during the film. But she's also very into art, and she becomes sort of fascinated with David. And the more that they interact, Lisa begins to communicate and trust David, right? right. Because, you know, she's not really talking to anybody but the people who were working in the facility, but then she kind of starts responding to David. And we had just talked about how David pretty much hates every single person in the facility, but he, in turn, shows this tenderness and this willingness to communicate with Lisa, too. Right. So they kind of have this, like, secret language, or, you know, they're kind of bonded to each other. You know, I think that if you looked at it, like, it seems like it would be like a crush or maybe some kind of romantic thing. And it never goes fully in that direction, which I actually think is nice. It is nice. And it's also, I don't think it can go in that direction because like she doesn't communicate the way that most people do and he doesn't want to be touched. So like, how can that develop into anything romantic? Right. Even though there are moments of the film where Lisa is processing the idea that she's a girl, Mm -hmm. and that she has feelings of love or, you know, she she has a moment where she kind of expresses herself sexually when she's by herself. Mm -hmm. But, like, it's, it's interesting because so you can tell, like, on some level... She's kind of exploring this idea of boys and and maybe having a crush on one of them or something. But, you know, it nev- they're not, like, in love in the traditional sense. Like, there's right. not, like, a thing where they're, you know, sneaking off to make out in the health facility. So, at a certain point, David's parents come back. And this part is actually really interesting because you get sort of a sense of, like, what his family life is like. And, like, they Mm -hmm. take him out of the home and they just, like, bring him home. They're just like, all right, just come home. And you you realize that his parents are very rich and that his mom particularly is sort of in denial of who he is. and, and, And I think he's so used to having them both sort of throw money at the stuff and not really understand him. Right. Right. And to me, that sort of echoes, it kind of has this like um, rebel without a cause feel where it's like, my parents don't understand me. They're just like totally out of touch with me. And at a certain point, David actually runs away from them and then goes back to the school. Yeah. Which is interesting. He's like, that's where my doc is. That's where my friend is. Like, you guys, there's at one point where the, the parents are talking to the doctor and they're like, yeah, like, we don't know. Like, there's nothing that's happened to him that would that would make him not want to be touched. Or, like, they basically are, like, so defensive about it that you can – it's telegraphed there and you can kind of understand in that moment that, oh, he can't open up to them because they're so defensive about the fact that he even has any kind of issue going on that they don't want to – they would not be the right people to try to help him solve it. Right. And it's just interesting how now he's seen, you know, this place that at first he was very dismissive of has now become, like, his safe space, which I – 
you know, think is interesting. And, you know, and there's many scenes in the movie that are really memorable. There's this one scene where they, the kids go on a field trip and they're at the train station and there's this like, you know, really like hard ass, you know, guy and his family there. And he just thinks that they're freaks and basically calls them that to their face. And the kids sort of, you know, process that information and then just start going off on him, which is great. Like, yeah. I love that part because they're basically like, oh, we're just a bunch of screwballs, huh? I, you know, and they kind of like fight back, which is... I loved that. Because they, they, yeah. he's basically like, let me grab my family and go away from these these kids because they're ruining the town and they follow him and just taunt him. And it's kind of like, like they know what, that this is what people think of them, but they rarely get a chance to express how that makes them feel or how ostracizing it is. You know, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and their, their interactions with each other are really interesting too, because, you know, there are friendships that get formed beyond the David and Lisa friendship. And I mean, I won't give away the the film, but there is a moment where David kind of sticks up for somebody else in, in their school and it um, hurts Lisa's feelings. And that sets off a chain of events, obviously. But for me, I, I remember seeing this movie, I think when I first started working at, at TCM, like back in the early 2000s and I had never heard of this movie before. It was, like, on the channel one day, and it was, like, this wonderful kind of, like, afternoon, black-and-white, cozy film. And I just was really, like, taken with it. I think it's, like, it's kind of a gem that, like, not a lot of people talk about. And I feel like it was actually hard to see for a long time. I think now, I mean, obviously now it's on, on a streaming site, but, like, I remember having a hard time even finding it even like a couple years ago. So, wow. but yeah, I think it's totally worth the watch. And, you know, I think it's, it's just a very cute story. If you're really into like that sort of like two sir with love, like kind of vibe, like the sixties sort of British invasion, y mod kind of looks, this is your movie. Uh, I love it for that too. And yeah, I just, just think it's really good cute film so it really is it was it was so it was and it feel it feels special like it feels like you're watching something that should be preserved because you don't you didn't see a lot of movies like that then and you still don't see a lot of movies like that now um but it felt just i liked being along for the ride and kind of just really tucking into this film and being like well what's going to happen next i don't know and like is he going to pop off on someone and knowing early on that they're not going to make any of those traditional moves was like very very helpful yeah agreed I loved it. agreed well, good. Ah, oh my I God, let's it. go for your film. Ah, I have so much well, to say. <laughs> my movie was released in 1984. Uh, the screenplay is by Sandy Kroof and Jack Bear. It was directed by Alan Parker, and it's based on the book Birdie by William Wharton. Um, we could have done books that in the movie theme here too. I didn't realize yeah. that. Uh, and my movie is Birdie. You're just a couple normal crazy Philly kids. Can I can I say something right up top? Oh, of course. Okay. I'm just going to complain about something. <laughs> That's it. But I have Go to get it. it out of the way now or else I'll forget it. And so I won't tell you, I know that this movie is available on like many different types of streaming services. I won't tell you the one I chose to watch it on, but I will say this. The one that I watched it on 
it was a fucking terrible experience because their dynamic ad insertion stuff was (gasps) totally screwed up. Like, I don't know what was happening, if it was like a buffering problem, but it would be that kind of thing of, you know, when you watch things on streaming services that have advertisements, okay? Mm What will happen is the movie breaks randomly and then you see a series of ads and then it goes back to the film, which I guess is the toll that you pay to watch a movie for free. Right? Can't get everything for free. But on this service, it was breaking the movie up so badly. And then it would just, like, it would continuously, like, stutter and then show the same ads over and over and over again at these very crucial parts of the film. (gasps) And it drove me fucking bananas. And I remember, like, like, going... I have to get this on Blu-ray. This is why people need physical media. You should never watch a movie with dynamic ad insertion in the middle of it. Fuck these people. Anyway. I know. It I I watch movies like that sometimes just on my own, like not for the pod, but just on my own. And I can't do it. Like I've tried it a few times and I'm like, this is they just throw those ads in wherever they want. Remember, like on cable, at least they would like go, fade to black and then bring yes. you into a commercial. And this is not like that at all. And it's too jarring, especially when you're watching an emotional movie. Yes. Well, it's just ultimately a testament to how good your movie is that I was pissed off that this company, I won't say whom, was destroying it with their stupid ads. Anyway. Well, it is, it is a great movie. And it's a movie that, again, like, it's so memorable to me. I saw it when I was younger, and I didn't remember it, like, beat for beat from when I was younger, but I've watched it again since, and I just remember feeling like, this is something special. Like, it's something weird and different, and I didn't know quite where it was going, and it just, it was a different, the first time I saw this movie, I thought, well, this is a different kind of movie, and I liked yeah. it. I liked that feeling. And like you said... This film was directed by Alan Parker, who is incredibly well-known. Alan Parker, he died in 2020 from a lengthy illness that was not disclosed, but it was not COVID. And he he directed probably some of your favorite movies. Like, he directed Midnight Express. He directed Mississippi Burning, Evita, The Commitments, Fame, The Wall. Like, he really had a wide and varied career. So if you want to look him up and look up some of his films, I bet you'd be surprised to realize you've probably already watched an Alan Parker movie. And Mm -hmm. his, this is a kind of interesting tidbit, his son actually wrote the movie Moon, which was directed by David Bowie's son (laughs) in 2009. Wow. Yeah. So... This movie, Birdie, when it was released, actually got a lot of acclaim, and it and it won the Grand Prix um, Special Jury Prize at Cannes in 1985. So it's kind of always had this this really like critically acceptable lens to it, even though it isn't really one of those films that would you would assume would have that. And it's mm-hmm. I just I love it. the The score is by Peter Gabriel. Um, which yes. again, like at the time, Peter Gabriel was not the the sledgehammer dude that we all came to know and love, but he, he's always had this kind of. Like... He was not the sledgehammer. <laughs> he was maybe shock the monkey. I don't know. Was that was that early earlier? He Peter was like, Gabriel? I think he was like Kate Bush duet <laughs> years. Like... The games without frontiers ish. Not the sledgehammer. He wasn't yet the sledgehammer, but. It was coming. 
And you can tell from moves like this, where he's like, let me do this soundtrack for this mo- this score for this movie and have it be very ethereal and strange and everything that we've come to know and love about Peter Gabriel. But I just, I love it. I just think it's always had a really tender place in my my heart for, I don't know, reasons I can't really even, even deeply explain, but I think that when you watch the film, maybe you'll understand. So my one-sentence synopsis is two childhood friends who are drafted into the Vietnam War, come out on the other side dealing with various injuries and illnesses to the point where one friend eventually has to step in to potentially save another friend's life. Mm -hmm. So this film, again, we already know this cast is fire because it's got our boy Matthew Modine in it. And he plays the title character of Birdie. And then we also have Nicholas, a young Nicholas Cage playing Al, Al Columbato. And he'd already done Valley Girl and a couple of other things, but this was like a, a another big turn for him, like a big turn for him as a young actor. One interesting tidbit that I learned in reading about this movie, because it is, you can tell later when you look like, oh yeah, that makes sense. He had his teeth removed. He had two of his te- front teeth removed for the character in this film. So when you're seeing what? him, yeah, like post-war, when you're seeing him with like his teeth are kind of yellow and removed, he did that on purpose for this film. He removed his teeth? Like yep. his grown-up teeth that don't grow back? Yep. What? <laughs> Nick Cage is a real one. Wow. He's like, oh, I'll see your method acting and I'll raise it by taking out some adult teeth. That's some all the way up shit. Yeah. That is some all the way up put shit a, for put sure. Put a pin in that. <laughs> put a pin in it. <laughs> Holy shit. But yeah, he took so when you're looking at him in these like post-war scenes, you're like, oh my gosh, like that, like, yeah, he does look so different. And that's part of the reason why. But it's essentially about these two kids who grow up in 1960s Philadelphia. Um, the story is kind of told in in a flashback format and when we start the movie, we're on, again, like that post-war angle. So we're seeing Nicolas Cage, who's come back from Vietnam. He had a really terrible accident where he was kind of shelled in the face. So when, when we see, we don't even really see his his face in the, the post-war scene because he's completely bandaged up with, except for like one eye and the rest, you know, whole, a whole half of his face is bandaged up throughout. And he talks, he talks about the injury as if it's like, like permanently disfiguring. So we don't get to see mm-hmm. it, but he's like, oh, they're t- they're telling me I have to have a steel jaw implanted. And like he kind of is hinting to this greater pain that is to come in healing his face. And Birdie is, when we, when we meet Birdie, it's because Al is on the way to this medical hospital where Birdie has been kept because he, his helicopter went down they were in different units and his helicopter went down and he was missing in action for a month before he was found. So now he's completely nonverbal and he kind of squats and sits and moves and like arches around in strange ways. And the doctor, the major, um, Dr. Weiss, who's trying to help Birdie, is, thinks that bringing his his best friend, who's also been through the the trials of war uh, to the hospital, will help open him up a little bit so they can start to to heal him. Yeah. So it's just, a, again, a, kind of an interesting way in in that post-war way that's not like Band of Brothers kind of like macho-y way. It's like we're meeting these characters when they're at their most vulnerable and their most yeah. tender and they're trying to figure out like how to come back to the world. So I just, I love that setup. And I think that 
you know, as we go back in time and we we meet, we kind of see how they first become friends. And it's pretty hyster a pretty hysterical runner is that Birdie's mom saves all the baseballs that get hit over her fence. Like he lives near the uh, the baseball diamond for the neighborhood. And every time a kid hits a homer, the mom just takes the ball and is like, fuck you. <laughs> Like, my my yard is not your fucking playground. Hit it somewhere else. And they're like, what the fuck? So it's like... Would you do that, by the way, if that was your situation where you'd be the the woman that's like keeping all these balls from these fucking kids that keep putting them into my yard? I would be worse. I would take that ball and bean it at the first person I fucking saw. (laughs) Right in the fucking head. Like head injury terror. Oh, you want to throw fucking hit balls over my goddamn fence all day long? Well, I'm trying to hang. Rat, I'm trying to hang laundry. Kids. Yeah, here's a here's a baseball in your face. I'm trying to <laughs> hang laundry and fucking shake out rugs and shit. It's the 1960s. Like, I will take that ball. I'll show you what kind of arm I have. <laughs> but yeah, oh, she's so she's hilarious. We kind of come into this this world where it's like again 1960s Philly, where at one point Nicolas Cage's character Al, when he's talking to Doctor Weiss, says. You know, I grew up in Philly and it was crazy. And, and the doctor's like, well, what was crazy about it? And he's like, uh, have you ever been to Philly? Yeah. <laughs> that's the, that's some true shit. You know how I feel about Philadelphia? I don't fuck with them or it. We, don't... Ah! <laughs> we know better than to fuck with Philadelphia. Let's just no say way. that. Yeah. Would never do it. Would never do it. So they're kind of, they meet in a fight, which is also, again, very interesting because Nicolas Cage's, you know, Al's, Al's little brother is like, that guy, Birdie, has my knife. Like, my knife was stolen and he has it. Right. So um, Al kind of, you know, approaches Birdie, who's on his porch with a pigeon in a cage, and is like, yo, you got my brother's knife. And they kind of start, like, running around. And then the brother's like, he didn't steal it. He just has it. And he's like, what? And he's like, oh, yeah, like, this other kid stole it. But he has it. And Birdie's like, yeah, I bought this knife off of someone, but if it's stolen, you can have it back. Like, you don't have to chase me around like a maniac. But it kind of tweaks something in Al's brain, and he gets very interested in Birdie and the fact that he is obsessed with birds. And when I say he's obsessed with birds, it is, like, like carnal. He He is so deeply obsessed with birds that it is almost difficult for him to be a full human being in the world. Yeah. He, like has jumped the gap of just, you know, somebody like me who likes to feed birds. Right. So, like, I might want to be a bird. Yeah. <laughs> I might want to, uh, you know, learn how to communicate with them. <laughs> exactly. He's like, I'm taking this out of the hobby territory and into the, let me see if I can build some wings and <laughs> try this out and let me jump from this building. So their friendship is like, it's again like very interesting because Birdie's quiet and tender and he kind of he's very soft spoken and he smiles a lot and is like very charmed by Al, you can tell. But Al's kind of focus in their friendship is always trying to bring he's just always trying to bring him into the world. Yeah. So the first time they go out on like a big hunt, like Birdie's trying to teach him like how to catch pigeons. And they go to this kind of industrial site uh where these pigeons are roosting in a high spot and Birdie's hanging over the edge of a building and Al's sitting on his legs. Something happens. He lets go. And Birdie's like hanging off of this building. And then he's like, no, it's cool. I'm just going to jump into that sand pit over there. And he just kind of leaps 
back into this sand pit. Meanwhile, Al's freaking out. And he does end up, like, breaking his legs and hurting his back. Like, it's not a good move. But the hilarious thing about this scene that is actually not hilarious is they're dressed like pigeons. So at one point, Birdie comes, like, they build a coop and they're kind of like, you know, he's teaching Al how to, you know, train a homing pigeon. And then at one point, Al comes in and he's like, Birdie, where are you? And he kind of creaks around the corner like like Bob from fucking Twin Peaks. And he's like, hey. <laughs> and he's in this fucking homemade pigeon suit where he's taken feathers and like attached them to thermal underwear, basically. Yeah. And he like makes a suit for this dude. like it, And Al's like, okay, like this is getting a little weird, but he goes with it. And so they're dressed as pigeons when he falls off of this roof. And... Again, they strike up this friendship. It, there's a lot of, like, danger that's built into their friendship, but but Birdie is obsessed with flying. So even though he fell and hurt himself, he just keeps saying, no, it was fine because I flew. Like, he finally felt, felt that experience and becomes obsessed mm-hmm. with it after that. So when we go back to them in present day, and again, Al has kind of come to this hospital, and Dr. Weiss is like, we if he doesn't talk or he doesn't communicate with us, like we might not be able to help him here. And he might be shipped to someplace more permanent, like a more permanent psychiatric facility, essentially. Yeah. And he's really, I don't know, he's just he's really not up to the task, so to speak, because nobody knows what the task is. But Birdie hasn't spoken. Like he doesn't speak anymore. And again, he's in this like squat position and he just seems like he is shut off from the world. He's just not communicating with facial movements or anything. He has to have one of the nurses feed him like he is actually a bird. So the hospital setting and the hospital scene is interesting because we've got Bruno Kirby, a very young Bruno Kirby, um, who's the orderly. And I just, I love, 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 his name's Rinaldi. And I love that Rinaldi didn't go to Vietnam because he was a conscientious objector. So his job is kind of like a punishment almost. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, nope, I'm fine with it because I didn't not want to go to fucking Nam, so I'm cool with it. And, mm-hmm. you know, kind of Al kind of asks, you know, so Al is kind of going through the motions with Birdie and talking to him and talking at him. And at one point, he indicates that Birdie might be making this up so that he doesn't have to reenlist or kind of go back into the military. And he's like talking about the doctor and he says, I, I don't trust that guy. Everything is too interesting to him. So as the movie goes on, you realize that the doctor is also kind of examining loosely examining Al and he's very interested in his face condition and his emotional his emotional state so like you were saying earlier like the doctor in this film is very much one of those like let's get down to brass tacks and figure out what the fuck's going on with you like he that's his purpose in this film and he doesn't really have a lot of time for anything else and he definitely doesn't have time for like letting an emotional connection between these two be the catalyst to Bertie speaking or kind of coming out of his shell a little bit yeah yeah the doctor is like you know, oh, you seem like you're very uh, quick to anger and you have outbursts. I'm like, he's Italian and he's from Philadelphia. And he just got blown up. Start there and then he got blown (laughs) the fuck up. (laughs) (laughs) Let's think about some of these other things before you immediately start going to, maybe this guy needs to be in here with Bernie. Who knows? Like, I fucking love it. I fucking love it. And it's like, again, like we're starting to get through this this friendship and look back at this friendship and they just do they do things for each other in a way that feels natural to both of them so 
Birdie and Al build a pigeon coop together because that's what Birdie's into. And then Birdie helps Al restore this old car because that's what Al is into. And through this car, we get to meet Al's dad, who's like, you know, very obnoxious and tough. And it's like, that car's a piece of shit. But I'll, you know, when when the time comes, I'll register it for you in my name. But it's a piece of shit. But they yeah. take this car and they're kind of like, they do this, like, they have like these really boyish acting out scenes where the car, the first time they start the car, they're like, so excited and jumping around and pretending they're driving. And Birdie Birdie indicates that he's never been to the ocean. And Al's like, I cannot handle that. So he drives them to the ocean. And they have this, like, adventure where Al is, again, like, I'm a teenage boy. Like, all I want to do is get with these girls. And there's a scene where they're, like, under the boardwalk. And Al is having sex with this woman. And her friend is sitting with Birdie, and the friend eventually gets up and is like, I can't take it anymore. Like, I can't talk to this weirdo anymore. I got to fucking go. So every, even every time he tries to, like, talk to a girl, like, no matter who he's talking to, he will bring it back to birds. He is, like, in his room building little ornithopters, I think is what they call it. Like, mm-hmm. he's building flying machines, and he's building his own wings. And there's a scene where, you know, Al is on a bike, and Birdie's on the front handles, and in these homemade wings that he's fashioned and he's pedaling super fast. And then he like stops short just over the edge of this um, hill and this garbage dump. And Birdie tries to fly that way. Like he's just constantly trying to fly and he has no way to communicate to other people. Um, So Al can kind of manage it because he is interested enough in him as a friend to be able to put up with it. But it even starts to get a little weird for him. Yeah. I mean, and that's, I think a big part of why I thought this movie was really endearing is, I mean, who hasn't had a friend who was kind of like awkwardly uh, moving through kind of like teenage years yeah. and, you know, the whole idea that Bertie sort of understands that he should be like hanging out with women and, and exploring things with girls, but he's like too obsessed with like his thing and he's just like, yeah, I don't really know if I even want to, like, hang out with girls right now. I'm just, I want to, you know, breed canaries and, you know, yeah. learn how to fly. And, I, I mean, I, I definitely, like, I appreciated this idea that the Nicolas Cage character, I think, was so, like, he was, like, so devoted to him mm-hmm. and was, like, yes, like, I'm your partner in crime. I definitely feel like I'm trying to socialize you in a way but ultimately, I feel responsibility for you. It is that devotion that kind of carries them through their relationship, because I think that there's there and there's a, there's a a, scene, a couple of scenes where, you know, Al, this character, is talking to Birdie and basically saying, you know, this doctor is basically trying to figure out whether or not we're queer, and it's like he thinks it's funny that he's trying to figure it out, which is again something you never see as someone who's like. This guy can't conceive of our friendship in any other way or our closeness right. in any, any other way. And the fact that Al recognizes that is so evolved and mature and something yes. that you rarely see in a character. And yeah. he's able to laugh it off because he's like, like, you're my you're my homie. Like, you're you're my guy. We're together for whatever reason we've been put together on this earth. And I feel responsible for you in a way that is not sexual and it's not, you know, what people think it might be. But it doesn't bother him at all. Yeah. what? A, that's a great point. Yep. Yeah, it doesn't bother him at all. So I think that, you know, when you see, and also as you kind of, as, as you move through the movie and you're seeing that, 
you know, they're getting older, they're graduating high school, and Bertie kind of is, like, invited to the prom by this girl who really likes him after he gives this big presentation in class about birds. He's so, he's so passionate, and this woman, like, she <laughs> falls in love with him. But you Been can there. See, been there. <laughs> you fell in love with the bird guy, right? You definitely, it's like, oh, here's the guy that can think of nothing else but this one thing. He's the man for me. I will somehow crack the code and yep. join the fray as being his next obsession. Nope, ain't ever gonna happen. And usually it's something like Legos or a video game. But whatever they're obsessed with, they are not giving it up for you. Uh, <laughs> but he, um, you know, kind of relents to to taking this girl to the prom because his mom essentially is like, who's again a bitch throughout. His mom is like, if you don't go to the prom and do something that is seemingly normal as a high school boy, I will get rid of your birds. Because Birdie has now created an aviary in his bedroom that his bed sits on top of. And he goes and, you know, he kind of goes to this bird breeder and gets a canary who he becomes obsessed with and is like laying naked in the cage. and like, But it's all done in a way that's not meant to be salacious it's like you're there's one scene in particular where you really get into his head and what he's thinking about and why he wants to fly and kind of or at least how he wants to fly and without examining too much like what exactly was the catalyst for this for him Um, it's just something that he's always just been like innately interested in so it's he's built this aviary and his mom's like yo like you've got this one canary i let you get another canary And if you don't go to the prom, like, I'm getting rid of these birds. So he goes, but he's, you know, he's so awkward and so out of place. And Al is trying to, like, get him into it. And he's just not into it. Mm -hmm. So, and the other thing that I find really sweet about this this film is that the relationship that Bertie has with his dad. So his dad is basically, his dad is played by George Buck. His mom is played by Dolores Sage. And his dad is the uh, janitor for their high school. But they have such this, they have such a, an interesting connection where like Birdie will kind of seek him out, which I think is interesting because you don't see him looking for people to talk to very often. And his dad kind of, he doesn't get it, but he supports this passion of his. And I just think it's really sweet that like, you know, especially that scene at the prom where, you know, he goes looking for, he sees his dad and his dad's like, oh my God, this is a fucking nightmare. All these boys are puking because no, no one can hold their fucking liquor. And <laughs> Bertie's like, oh yeah, like I saw you. And he's like, uh, I was going to come say hi to you, but I didn't want to interrupt your date. And I thought you might be embarrassed. And Bertie's like, why do you think I, I wouldn't be embarrassed? Like he's just so connected to his dad that he doesn't even consider that he should be embarrassed or that there is something that would, you know, he doesn't think of it in the same way that his his own father thinks of it, which is like, right. You know, I don't want to cramp your style. And Birdie's like, you don't cramp my style. You're kind of one of the only other people on this planet who gets me. So yeah. between Al and his dad, I think there's just a really an interesting look at masculinity, an interesting look at relationships, like non-romantic relationships. And as the movie, again, progresses and things get very intense um, and build to a really, I think, just a really masterful ending, you just get to feel sympathy for both of these characters who are, again, like, have been supremely damaged in the height of war and are trying to find a way to use their existing relationship to come back to each other and realizing that that might not be the case, that that might not happen. And Al is kind of pushed to a place where he has to evolve their friendship in the wake of what's happened to them 
while maintaining those feelings of of closeness and kind of wanting to be responsible for him. So I just I just think it's a really it's a beautiful movie. I do too. I am so glad that I finally watched it because I know you've brought it up a few times in other episodes. Just um God, I want to say did you bring it up when we talked about Nicolas Cage? I think we talked about early like early yeah. 80s Nicolas Cage. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I don't know why I thought before you had brought it up, I don't know why I thought this movie was about Charlie Parker, <laughs> the <laughs> jazz musician. <laughs> I mean, natural. It's a natural progression, I would have thought. Yeah, I was like, oh, that's that Alan Parker movie about Charlie Parker, Bird, the Bird, Charlie Parker. I'm like, no, that's not what it's about at all. It's actually this really tender, oh, sweet uh, story about friendship and helping somebody out. And I, yeah, I, I just think... I keep going back to the word cozy because that's kind of how I felt about. And I also love, you know, it's got that whole feeling of like, especially when they're moving through the kind of memories of the old neighborhood and like mm-hmm. <laughs> anytime something funny happens, La Bamba plays. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like they're ant- like they're running away from somebody or there's some antics happening. It's like <laughs> La Bamba kicks in and I'm like, gotta love that. Um, oh, God. Absolutely. Oh, and also on that beat, there, if, if you're, there there's one scene in this movie that I say you should look up on the on the website does the dog die in this one if you're at all sensitive to animals because there's yeah. one scene that's deeply intense but yeah la bamba plays at the end of it because they <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they let these animals free and it's very which they should do and it's very fucking funny yes all you all you have to know is that la bamba plays after it's over which means it has ultimately a good outcome and not a dark outcome, like you might think. <laughs> but um, actually, I was thinking about this pairing of like Nicolas Cage and Matthew Modine. I think it's actually kind of great. I don't yeah. know if they were ever in movies together before or after, but I'm like, these two guys together, it kind of works because they're both kind of like, they both kind of have this, um, I don't know, this kind of... Uh, they're both kind of like lovable nuts, you know what I mean? Yeah. In their own ways. Like Ma- Matthew Modine, like I think part of what we've discussed about him in the past is that he's kind of like a, a wacky, he, he plays a lot of like wacky characters, even though he himself looks kind of like a just standard blonde guy type. Right. Like he always has this like, there's something off kilter about him. And then, of course, Nicolas Cage is going to Nicolas Cage, right? Oh, from so, the beginning. From the, yes. Keith removed Nicolas Cage, like, from the beginning. He was like, yeah. I'm going hard. Yeah. But then, like, them together, I don't know, it was just so fun to yeah. see them have, like, a friendship, you know? Yeah. And honestly, like, Matthew, if you're out there <laughs> and you want to ah, be on this ah, podcast... Ah, ah. I think we've done more movies that you've starred in than any other. So you almost need to come on this podcast to talk about it. That that will be the day we end the cast. Like <laughs> we discussed every possible Matthew Modine movie. Come on and talk about them and then we are done. Yeah, I mean, I would faint just from talking to him about Memphis Bell alone. <laughs> Let alone 
all the other stuff he's done. Um, well, and he's he's so he's also like this is one of those movies that you know similar to Vision Quest, where like this is a movie where I realized his how much he uses his physicality in his acting. Yes. He is a very tall person, so there are some scenes where he's squatting like a bird on the like a like a bird on a perch, but he's actually like naked and on the end of his bed in this yeah. psychiatric hospital. And he's just so tall, but he makes himself look so tiny. It's just, it's very, very interesting. Oh, definitely. There are scenes where he's basically kind of crammed himself into like these little corners of his hospital room or whatever. And I'm like, wow, like he is a very physical person. Like you wouldn't think that, but it's, it's so true. But I, this movie is lovely. Oh my God. It's lovely. And it's, and it's, it's just such a nice surprise to see a movie like this. And, I can totally see why you love it. Aww. I can totally see why you love it. So early imprint, early imprint. I just I oh love both of these these actors. I love the style. I love the score. Like it just yeah, it's special. It's a special movie. Well, I'm actually pretty proud of us this week because, you know, this topic is obviously a big one. Mm-hmm. And normally when we've gotten <laughs> we've gotten out of brass tacks about some of these big topics. It can get really serious. But I, I like that we both picked films that sort of are uh, the opposite of that. Like, I don't know. Like, it's still talking yeah. about big issues and, and important issues, but it's also, like, it's taking kind of that road less traveled. They're a little lighter and more effervescent, which is nice sometimes. Yeah. Well, and even know? even in my... I agree. And, and even in my film, it's like, um, you know, it, it's pretty common knowledge now that... You know, a lot of people returning from Vietnam were treated so poorly. And Nick Al Colombato, the char- Nicolas Cage character in this film, even says that at one point where he goes to a gym and he sees a guy who doesn't have legs climbing up a rope. And he says, you know, if we had fought this war in any other era, we would have been heroes. Heroes, yeah. And instead, you know, we're treated like shit. And it's just, you know, it's, again, like a different viewpoint on something that maybe people feel like they know a lot about. But I just, I appreciated those moments of looking at, you know, mental health issues in a more tender space and looking at, you know, kind of the fog of war in a more tender space. Definitely. And, you know, two movies that are ultimately focused on friendship and connection, which is Mm -hmm. really meaningful. And it's always nice to watch movies about that. So... I loved it. I loved it. Oh, thank you so much for doing this this theme with me and letting me have a, a more comical theme for a, a, a more serious topic. <laughs> yes, agreed. Well, listen, if you want to email us, we are at isawatchdidpod at gmail.com. And you can find us on our social media at isawpod on Instagram and Twitter. Also, we have merch Please go to the I Saw What You Did section of the Exactly Right shop to find it. Our new bonus episodes are up on the main feed every third Thursday of the month. And our old bonus episodes are coming out all the time. They're just all the time on the main feed. So you'll see them pop up and we're just always going to give them to you until we run out. Yeah. Yep. They're pouring out of your inboxes like a waterfall. There are simply too many episodes for us I, to count. <laughs> I just caught a glimpse of what our theme is for next week. <laughs> Nobody is going to get it. Nobody is guessing this theme. You might guess 
Yeah, actually, I don't even think you'll guess the general theme. You're definitely not going to get guess the actual name. Do you want to tell them what the movies are and see if they could try? It's a it's a yeah. challenge. It's a challenge. All right, here we go. Next week's movies are Being There from 1979 and Married to the Mob from 1988. If anyone guesses our theme, beyond just the general theme, if anyone guesses our theme, I feel like we should let them take over the podcast. Yes. I will write you a check for $2 million. (laughs) Whether or not you can cash it remains to be seen, but she will write it. Wait. Casey might need to run that over with legal. I don't know if I can actually dare people in that way. But (laughs) anyway. Basically, I will be thrilled if anyone guesses this. If anyone guesses the actual theme, we're going to have to like hook up or something. Absolutely. Well, Danielle, as always, a fucking pleasure doing this podcast with you. I love it. This has been an Exactly Right production, produced by Casey O'Brien, mixed by Edson Choi. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel, artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at IsawPod, and you can email us at IsawWhatYouDidPod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.